people. We've been on a journey. The, uh, the week's almost over. I go to China soon. That's, that's good. Um, we started off Sunday morning and talked about Zion. We talked about where we're going. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And then we looked at who's going there. The second talk, the narrow door. Why is it narrow? The four reasons people think they're in, but they're really not. And then we looked at the third session. Jesus is unique among all the founders. How he is, uh, really Christianity is the only true religion that there is. And um, that is because it is a relationship. And then we looked at well, if I don't have Jesus, how good is good enough? And we realized, well, no good is good enough because no one's good. And then this morning we looked at, in light of that, um, the Great Commission and how we are to go out and, and, and reach the nations. And the final command of Jesus given five times over a period of 40 days. And so tonight's kind of the capstone of what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me as in my life phase, because we're all at life phases. Some of us are in the age of uh, we're, we're single and we're, we're here with our parents. Some of us are at the age of retirement, and, and some of us are at the age of like, man, I'm trying not to drown with four or five kids and doing life and soccer. And so I want to talk about this idea of the global Christian lifestyle. Now, some things in life are optional and some things are not, okay? So driving a car, optional. Driving on the correct side of the road, not. Um, Eating food, not optional. Wearing shoes, optional. Getting married, optional. Loving your spouse once you're married, not optional. Becoming a Christ follower, optional. Once you are a Christ follower, being a global Christian, not optional. Why? Because as we saw this morning, we serve a global God. And so we should all be global Christians. Now, for some of us, that means we're going to be crossing an ocean. For most of us, that means we're going to be crossing the street. But we are all actively engaging in reaching the nations, whether it means from our own zip code or moving to another. And so when I think about this idea of the global Christian lifestyle, I think one of the best definitions of a global Christian is someone who's had the aha moment. It's someone who realizes that God has a heart for the world and they are responsible. It's someone who, who, it's a Christian who has discovered the truth and needs of God's unfulfilled global purpose to reach all peoples. Basically, they realize that 1040 window is their responsibility. They realize it's not just for a select few, but they are responsible. And so it's a Christian who has discovered the truth and needs of God's unfulfilled global purpose. Now, when you think about well, man, what does a global Christian do day in and day out? Like a mom of four, like how do I, how can I be a global Christian? What does it mean for me? Or a father that works and, and he coaches. Like what does that mean for me as a global Christian? I think as we move through the night, there are five habits that we want to bring to light and really ask the question, how are you doing in light of these five? So how are you doing in light of these five habits? Now, what you might find is you're like, oh, man, I'm really good at four. I mean, I'm good at two, but a, world, a global Christian is someone who's balanced in all of them. And so a global Christian is someone who is going cross-culturally when, when the season permits and, and the opportunity is there. A global Christian is someone who's welcoming the nations who are in their neighborhoods and at their work and at their schools. A global Christian is someone who is praying for the world. 
not just for their own specific family or needs. A global Christian is someone who is giving sacrificially to incredible organizations like Kids Alive. A global Christian is someone who is mobilizing those who have no understanding of the 1040 window and taking them from zero to zealot in their life. And so I just want to walk you through these five habits and just as we do tonight, ask the question, how are you doing? And hopefully, prayerfully, God will give you some specific applications as he does with me every time I walk through this. So the goer, the welcomer, the prayer, the sender, and the mobilizer. Let's just start with the goer. Here's the conversation that God has with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Now, as we read through this, I want you to realize how many times God refers to himself, and I've underlined it to make it incredibly easy. And actually, I'm going to pre-tell you the answer's nine. Nine times. Nine times God mentions himself. Watch this. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Nine is a nine-to-one ratio. Matter of fact, in this entire conversation, God only mentions Moses once. But Moses does the exact same thing we do when God invites us in to live a life that matters. Moses can only focus on one thing. Who am I? Who am I? And I promise you, there are people who this week have been encouraged to go back home, live differently, and play a part of God's kingdom. And all the time, they're like, who am I? There's no way. Who am I? I have addictions. I have issues. I have social anxiety. I have knowledge gaps. There's things I don't know. Who am I? And watch what God does. Watch what God does with Moses. He says, Moses, it's not about who you are. I will be with you. I will be with you. And that promise of his presence is the thing that drove the men and women before us. Abraham, I will be with you. Isaac, I will be with you. Jacob, I will be with you. Joshua, go into the land, I will be with you. Solomon, build a temple, I will be with you. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. God wants to use you, not how you should be, but how you are, because we'll never be how we should be. He put this gospel in broken vessels. I mean, if you have something of worth, the last thing you're going to put it in is of broken vessels. But it is such a privilege to join him as broken vessels and really show off his glory as we are who we are. Now what happens when people begin to get a heart to say, Lord, I want to follow you and step out. And maybe that means joining a nonprofit locally and just doing something really different than what your major was in college or what your business is now. Maybe that is indeed raising support and going overseas. There's, there's, there's major obstacles that we come across that as soon as you begin to step out and try to follow God that you're going to encounter. So as, as soon as you do something, especially in the Christian community, that's against like self-absorption, you know, it's like, wait a minute, hold on. 
And so what my wife and I have found as we've traveled the United States and, and, and even overseas is we found these five issues just keep occurring. They keep occurring. They keep occurring. Family, marriage, debt, I have no call and support raising. These five, family. What happens when God says go and family says no? I thought it got easier to tell your parents what you're going to be doing the older you got, but it, I've realized it's harder. I thought it was going to, man, in college, my parents were like, you're not going into ministry, go be a teacher. And I'm like, I, I just thought it was going to be easier the older I got. But what I realized is the older you get, the harder it gets because, because suddenly you have another a spouse that has their family, you have kids and they use them to manipulate their ailing health. Like, you're not going to go to Africa when I'm dying of cancer. Like, no. I, I'll never forget it was May 8th. May 8th. Seared in my mind, May 8th. May 8th, I was graduating from Dallas Theological Seminary. We invited my parents, Jessica's parents, to Dallas to watch me cross that stage. May 8th. It was May 8th. I was graduating from Dallas Theological Seminary. It was May 8th. It was uh, Mother's Day. I remember it was May 8th. We brought my parents into Dallas, Texas. I was graduating. It was Mother's Day. It was May 8th. We took them to a nice Mexican restaurant to celebrate. It was May 8th. I remember May 8th because I was graduating. It was, it was Mother's Day, May 8th. It was my wife and I's anniversary. I remember May 8th. And so here my parents are, my in-laws were at this Mexican restaurant. I stand up, I grab a glass. I'm like, ding, 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 ding. Mom, dad, Gene, Joe, Jess and I just want you to be the first to know we're moving to the Middle East. <laughs> and uh, I remember my mom started crying my dad grabbed me by the arm and he took me outside. He grounded me for eight months. I had to, uh, my wife had to get a second job. He took my car, my phone. Um, and I just remember in that moment, I'm like, man, it, it's so true. Like the older you get, the harder it gets. Because, because of the parental expectations. I was telling my friend with the beard, the only one in here that's longer than this. Um, I was telling my friend with the beard, you know, I was like, man, Following Christ affects two people. Following Christ affects two people. It affects the one following, but it affects the one who loves the one following. I pray my daughter follows Christ, right? And it's going to take her places. It's going to affect her. She's going to find herself in places she never thought she'd go but I love her, it's also going to affect me because suddenly I'm like, wait, you're not working at Chick-fil-A? You're moving overseas? Following Christ affects two people, the one following and the one who loves the one following. This is how Jesus dealt with family. For I came to set a man against his father and a father against his daughter. A man's enemies will be the member of his own house. It will not be easy when you step out and go against your parental expectations. I don't care how old you are. Or what about this one, Marriage. Marriage. Man, when I, when I talked, I, I, was, I, was speaking to, um, I was speaking at a Christian college, 600 students, and chapel was mandatory, so nobody was listening. And um, it's so disheartening when you're up on stage and you're at a Christian college and like everybody's like, you know, some are in headphones, bows, noise cancellation. Like it's hard to really get in their life when they're wearing beats. And um, 
I just got, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I walked to the back of the stage and I said, if you want to be a missionary, don't marry a Christian. Everybody looks up. They're in shock. What did he say? So I said again, if you want to be a missionary, don't marry a Christian. And no joke, someone shouted from the balcony, marry a... And I said, if you want to be a missionary, don't marry a Christian. And, and, and I think I tell university students, the one, the, the, there's one thing worse than dying single. And they're like, no, there's not. There's nothing worse than dying single. And I'm like, there is. It's marrying the wrong person. And so we've got to make sure that two visions is division. This is very difficult. When you, want to, you want to go to China, but your, your spouse wants to go to counseling. That's a problem. Here's an email I got not too long ago. I just want to let you know I came across your website today. At 18, I spent a summer in student missions and knew at the end of that summer that God wanted me in missions work. But then I met a guy and basically sold God out just to get married. I'm now 41 and have regretted that decision in so many ways. Please keep telling young people that the day to minister for Christ is today, not tomorrow, next semester, next year, and then tell them to never, ever, ever let any person or anything deter you from the mission that God has placed in your heart. I'm speaking from experience. Man, family, marriage. What about this one? Debt. Debt. And again, many of you who have university debt, that can just be a major chain. But think about as you, the most mobile, sinful people on the planet are university students. But this week, the average debt just went up $29,400. That's what it is today. And so when I talk to, to young adults, as you will talk to them as well, and they'll be fired up for missions, but then they're looking at this, what I tell people is, hey, don't look at the 29400 Every major mission agency, including people, ministries like Kids Alive, will say, hey, build that into your budget. What's the monthly debt you're going to have? And so you go into the academics office at Texas A&M, and you're like, I'm 30000 in debt. And they're going to say, oh, that's $300 a month. You don't want to let $300 a month keep you from joining God, whether that's a nonprofit and going overseas or staying locally. And so as you think about counseling this next generation of young adults who come to you and they say, man, I have a question. I think I want to follow God, but I have debt. We need to be encouraging them, man, don't look at just that 30 or 60,000. What's the monthly payment? Or what about this one, the call? Oh, this is a big one, isn't it? There's nothing more confusing than missionary call. Am I called or not? Is that a liver quiver? I don't know. Am I called? I mean, you will either deal with the call or people will come to you and say, hey, I have a question. Like, what do you think it means to be called? And so I found there's three types of callings in Scripture that I share with people when they're like, I'm confused about the missionary call. And so there are three different types of missionary callings that you see in Scripture. The first is called the mysterious call. Now, this is the one that makes all the publicity. Okay, this is the one we've normalized. This is when Paul the Apostle, he's ministering in Turkey, in Traos, Turkey. And he, if you're looking at a map, he wants to take the gospel right to China, to, the, to, to take the gospel to China. But he has a vision of a man in Europe, in Macedonia, saying, cross the river and come over and help us. Don't go right. So Paul, in Acts 16, decides not to go right, but to go left. And the first European believer, Lydia, in all of Europe comes to Christ. 
Now, here's what the average Christ follower does in your life. Ready? Here, they, here it is. It's so beautiful. We normalize Paul's call to missions for us. Man, are you thinking about going to Indonesia? Well, if Gabriel appears and says, go there, sucka, then I will. But if he doesn't, then I won't. Because I just don't want to move out of self-absorption without a clear call that I should. I just don't want to make that decision, you know, quickly. But no one normalizes Paul's call to salvation. You know, if you're like, if I'm like, hey, how'd you come to Christ? And you're like, man, I was 16, I was at a youth event, a guy gave me an opportunity and I came to Christ. I'm not like, that's not a real decision. Paul fell off a donkey and saw Jesus. Just saying. You might want to doubt. We don't normalize Paul's call to salvation. We shouldn't normalize his call to missions. But the mysterious call happens to 4% of all missionaries. I've done the research and I found out that out of 100 missionaries, 4 out of 100 have had the mysterious call. Many times it's in a dream or a vision or something like that where it's like, oh my gosh, God wants me in Morocco. So it happens, but it's very, very rare. However, every Christ follower you know is kind of waiting for it to move out. So... The second type of calling is called the commissioning call. This is when your elder, your church leader, your pastor comes to you and says this, man, hey, my, you know, the staff have been watching you. We're gonna, we want to do a six-week church plan in Mexico City, and we think you'd be perfect. That's just as biblical. Look at this. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, while the leadership was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to the leadership and said, go back to Barnabas and Saul, lay your hands on them and send them out. So that is the commissioning call where people are commissioned out. Now, unfortunately, the majority of churches aren't commissioning people out. They're reacting to people who get a heart for the Lord and going like, oh man, I don't know what we should do either. So only four out of a hundred have experienced the commission call. So let's just do the math. Four out of a hundred have had the mysterious call. Four out of a hundred have had the commissioning call. That means 92% of all people on the mission field have experienced the third calling. Man, my wife and I just kind of looked at a map, asked God where no one was going, and volunteered. It just seemed good. A buddy of mine was so, con- he was disillusioned with this idea of the call. I'd met with him for two months, and he's like, no, man, I'm just, I don't, I, I can't understand it. So after two months of meeting with him, finally, he's like, Todd, forget it. He told me that him and his wife with his three kids in junior high put up a map of the world in the living room, this huge map of the world. And he said, he told me, Todd, my, uh, we, we, we invited my three kids in the living room. I told my wife and I predecided. When the kids got in the living room, I pulled out a dart And I said, kids, wherever this dart lands, your mom and I are going to move there for seven years. The kids are freaking out. Mom and dad prayed, dad threw the dart, and it landed in the ocean. (laughs) Support raising. Support raising is something that either you will have people come to you who are raising support, like the staff of Kids Alive, or it's going to be people who, who you yourself are going to be raising support and going to. Don't let support raising freak you out, whether people ask you personally for support or whether or not you end up having to raise support. Support raising is not unbiblical. It just can be un-American. Jesus raised support. This is the man who 
cause coins to come out of the fish's mouth and bread to come to come out of a basket. But yet, look at what happened. Mary, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Susanna, many others, these women were helping to support them. Jesus allowed the women of that society to give. Matter of fact, Paul the Apostle picks up on this and says, in the same way that the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel, receive their living from the gospel. Now, let me just say this when it comes to goers. Okay, I'm going to share something with you that I don't really share, that actually I've never shared in a situation like this. It's always like one-on-one with other mission mobilizers. But I'm just going to give you a small like peek behind the idea of who's some goers, okay? So the word that I want to use is this. When you go back to your church and you think, okay, if I want if I want to see our church being a sending church, I need to identify the most mobilizable people in my church. So, when you go back to your church, you're going to find people who what I would call are the most mobilizable. Now, let me tell you who the most mobilizable are in your church. They're people between the ages of 21 and 26 that have no kids and are either single or newly married or retired over 55. Those are the people who are ready now to give two years or more to missions. Those are what we call the most mobilizable. And so when I talk about goers, I'm saying those are the sweet spots of mobilizables. Now, will you have the husband, wife, and three kids, you know, go to Indonesia and sell their business? Yes, but it's an anomaly. And God might call you, if you're that person here tonight, God might call you to do that. But for the most part, if you don't tonight fit in those categories, there is a high mathematical chance that your primary roles are going to be the other four. If you fit in those age groups, there's a high probability that you should be a goer. Does that make sense? So, if you're a mom in here with three kids and you're like, oh my gosh, I, just, I don't want you to feel like, oh, we got to pack up and leave. Now, maybe that's you, but I'm saying mathematically, it's probably not. So, beware anyone 21 to 26 and over 55. The goer. But we can all be welcomers. We can all be welcomers. What do I mean by a welcomer? A welcomer is someone who has, a, who, who, who during their day-to-day activities, during soccer, during, during uh, ballet, during work, during, you know, Pilates, during bar three, like you are, how does he know? You are like engaged in seeing the nations around you. Now, when I think of seeing the nations around you, I think of the immigrants you work with. I think of the refugees that are in your city. And I think of the international students that are around you if you live in a college town. So, so what I would ask you to do is, along with your other ministry and activities and things like that, have eyes to see immigrants who you work with, who are at Starbucks who you're drinking coffee with, international students, and then refugees. Some of your cities you live in are high refugee areas. I mean, even international students, look at how many we have in the U.S. And they are here. And many of them will stay here and get jobs next to you. And the Lord commands us to love the foreigners. He reminds the nation of Israel, do you remember when you were in Egypt and your stomachs were never hungry and your shoes never wore out? 
He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner giving food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you are foreigners in Egypt. Remember Egypt. Leviticus, the foreigner living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself. Why? Remember in Egypt. He always goes back to Egypt. Remember when you were foreigners. Remember when we were alienated from God, enemies hostile, but yet God initiated and saved us in the same way. Foreigners who are aliens in our land, we need to love and encourage and befriend. If you were to take the top 10 nations who send their students to America to study, let me say that again. If you were to take the top 10 students who send their students to America to study, it is staggering when you see the top 10. Here is the top 10 countries that send their students to study. China, no name for God, 1 billion people. Saudi Arabia, 99.9% Muslim. Taiwan, 86% Buddhist. India, 85% Hindu. Japan, 96% Buddhist. Vietnam, 76% uh, Buddhist. Turkey, 98.7% Muslim. And yet these, matter of fact, if you were to pull out the top 10 countries that send their students here to study that are not in the 1040 window... I mean, watch this. God has told the church, go to the nations. The church says, no thanks, Lord. We're going to be high maintenance and self-absorbed. So God says, I'm going to send them to your Starbucks in your cities. And the average Christian you know says, sorry, Lord, I'm still not going to talk to them. I'm busy living in me world. A friend of mine named... Jess, what's his name? Sarah's husband, Billy. K-State, Sarah, and not Simon, but I don't know. I'm on stage. I can't think of it that fast. <laughs> I'm on the spot. Sarah and Simon, Samson, Sally, Samsonite. I was way off. <laughs> My friend at K-State. I have a friend at K-State, and um, he, uh, he was a freshman, and it was May, and uh, he was in the student union a week away from graduation, and um, he's sitting at a coffee shop, and he sees this Chinese student, and he's like, man, I need to, you know, he like... I need to do something. So he goes over and he starts talking to this uh, Chinese student and he finds out that the Chinese student is like, they have a great conversation for 45 minutes. And uh, you know what I'm talking about? Spencer, there you go. <laughs> anyway, um, Spencer. So Spencer's like, man, I, he has a great 45 minute conversation with this Chinese student and he's like, man, can I get your number? Because like, I wanna be friends with you. He's a freshman at K-State, and the Chinese student's like, man, I'm a senior. I graduate in, in a week, and I fly back to Beijing. 
And Spencer's like, oh, man, okay, well, take my number. If you need anything, if you need anything, like just, we have a week. If you need anything, and Spencer knew, he's like, probably never going to hear from him. But like five days later, the Chinese student texts Spencer and says, hey, um, can you take me to the airport? You know, emoji airplane. And um, uh, Spencer texts him back, you know, of course, emoji SUV. And um, uh, the Chinese student texts him back and says, well, hey, I've got a lot of luggage because, you know, I've been here four years. And he's like, you know, no problem, emoji uh, uh, SUV, SUV. And um, so, so anyway, he wheels around the, the dorms. The, the Chinese student comes down and Spencer told me, he's like, I have never seen a bigger hockey bag packed that full. He's like, I pulled up my SUV uh, uh, hood. I pushed down the seat. We stuffed, we stuffed, we stuffed. We shut it, it shut. We high-fived, and he said, I have one more. Well, if you've been to Manhattan, Kansas, where K-State is, the airport's only like a mile and a half away. So Spencer's like, let's just strap it to the top. So on the way to the airport, Spencer's like, hey, man, what's the, like, what is in all these bags? And the Chinese student said, oh, it's souvenirs. And Spencer's like, oh my goodness, that's incredible. Like, you have so many friends back in China that you're taking souvenirs to. And the Chinese student said, no, it's souvenirs I brought from China to give to my American friends. I made none. I made none. He spent four years at a university in Manhattan, Kansas, surrounded by thousands of Christ followers. And now he will go back to China, never having a friend, never hearing the gospel. Now, I'm going to say something, and you're not going to believe me, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to say something, and you're not going to believe me, but I'm going to say it anyway. You're going to say to me, that's impossible, and I'm going to say to you, no, it's not. I have actually met, I have met, you're going to be like, Todd, there's no way. I have met Christ-following Christians in America who, when I say, pull out your phone and show me an international student you're befriending, a refugee or an immigrant you're sharing the gospel with, they've had none. I have met people who are Christ followers who when I ask them, hey, can you show me like some international students, refugees or immigrants, just give me one or two that you're befriending. I have literally met Christ followers. I know you're like, there's no way. I promise you, I have. That is a tragedy. We need to do more. I'm not asking you. God's not asking us to raise $2,200, learn Arabic, get the Hep A shot, polio booster, yellow fever shot, and fly to Saudi Arabia. He's asking us at our workplace to say hi to a Hindu. He's asking us at Starbucks to identify those around us not from here. He's, he's asking us when we're at soccer with our kids, we look over and we're like, oh my gosh, I need to initiate like God initiated with me. We need welcomers. We need prayers. We need prayers. The, the, of all the things the disciples asked Jesus to teach them, think about this. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Why of all the things? Because the disciples saw when Jesus prayed, things happened. That's when, the, when, the, when the, the disciples were like, hey, Lord, just teach us to pray. And he did. One of the most quoted verses, right? 
we have is, is this verse right here. When he, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. The, the most biblical thing you can pray at small group is this. Hey, I'll conclude in prayer. Lord, I pray that us as a small group would understand we are sent ones out to the nations. The most biblical thing you can pray over your kids is, Lord, send them to the darkest corners of the earth. And I know it's hard. And I, I let my wife pray it and I leave the room. Okay. I'm being vulnerable. It's hard. It's very hard. And so, that's the most biblical thing we can pray for our kids, though. Jesus says there's a vast amount of harvest to be harvested, and there's a vast amount of bored, apathetic, self-absorbed, high-maintenance Christ followers in the West. Pray that they get connected, and you are the connector. This is a free app you can download on your phone. It's an incredible app. It's free. Let me just say that again. It's called the Unreached of the Day. The Unreached of the Day. So today, the Zhuang peoples, August 8th, population 2 million people, 0.2% Christian. Completely unreached. I mean, if that, I don't even know the mathematically how many Christians that would be among two. That's like you're the only Christ follower you know, in the state of Arkansas, like that you're it. That's what it feels like to be the believer. And this, this, this is a free app, Unreached of the Day. And, and every day you can search in, in alphabetical order or by day or by country. The guy who founded this app is in London. He called me on the phone in my office before he launched it. And he was like, hey, can we use some of your resources? I was like, what is this going to be? He's like, it's called Unreached of the Day. Every day, an unreached people group. It pops up on your phone. You just pray for it, whether, whether it's in small groups or by yourself. I said, tell me about the app. He said, this app, you're going to be able to be, if you're in Indonesia, you can hit around me with this app and it will tell you the unreached people groups within a hundred kilometer radius that's around you. He said, with this app, if you're in Indonesia, you can take a picture of an Indonesian and based on the cheekbones and height of the forehead, it will tell you what unreached people group they're from. I made that up, but that would be awesome, wouldn't it? (laughs) Here's what I encourage people to do. This is just a great application. Set a silent alarm for 1040, 1040 window, on your phone. Moms, dads, wherever you are, at 1040, the, the silent alarm goes off. And all you do is three clicks. Quick, click the silent alarm, click the unreached people today, and click today. And boom, the, the Zhuang of China, two, you know, 0.2% Christian. And that's it. You close the app and you go about your day. But for the rest of the day, you're like, Lord, I just pray for the Zhuang. That night, oh, guys, it's Schwong's Unreached People Group Profile Day. Let me just close with praying for them. Lord, send workers to the wrong. Because my gravitational pull is towards self-absorption, and I need daily reminders that, I don't, that God doesn't revolve around me. So just an idea. The person who mobilizes the church to pray will make the largest contribution in history to world evangelization. We need people who will be goers. We need people who will be welcomers. We need people who will be prayers. We need people who will be senders. Senders. You are not a second-class Christian, as I mentioned before. If you're a teacher, you have three kids, you pray for the world, reach out to refugees, and give sacrificially to your church. 
Just because you don't cross salt water doesn't make you a second-class Christian. We need people who will go overseas. We need people who will be working here supporting them. David instituted a rule in the Israelite army. The rule was this. The share of the man who stays with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to battle. All will share alike. You need the person who's rescuing by shimmying down the well, and you need someone who's the rope holder. You need the rescuer and you need the rope holder. You need them both. And maybe God has you in this season, 26 to 54, as a rope holder. That's just what, that's the season you're in. Maybe God has you as a rescuer. But we need them both. We need them both. The problem is there's a clog in the drain. White, wealthy Westerners who stay behind as the frontline missionaries move forward, our priorities slowly sway My husband just signed an $89 million contract. He held out for a long while before signing, hoping the management would match the $91 million of another team. The Yankees did not budge. When I saw him walk into the house, I immediately knew that he had not succeeded in persuading them to move up from $89 million to $91 million. He felt so rejected. It was one of the saddest days of our lives. Now, I know you're kind of laughing because you're like, I could live fine off $40 million, and I'm the same way. I don't need like ninety. But when I... When I, when I hear this, you know, we have this emotional reaction like, how clueless is this woman of the Yankees baseball player? Why? How far from reality? We have this emotional reaction. How could she think this? But yet, what's crazy is, when I fly to, to Nairobi, Kenya, and I meet my friend Domtu, who's on staff with Nomads for Christ, and I'm like, Domtu, how's the ministry? And he says, pray for us. And I said, why? And he says, because we have 10 people on our staff selling, that can't get to full support. They're selling ice cream in the Capitol. Pray for them that they can get to full support. And I'm like, Domtu, what what's full support for your staff? And he says, all our staff are at 100%, 100% support when they're at $30 a month. I'm like, $30 a month will support one staff? He's like, yes. Now, if in that moment, if, right if right then I told Dom to, I spend $1,200 a month on health insurance, $300 a month on car insurance, $200 a month on health insurance, $150 a month on homeowner's insurance, you know, $100 a month on, health, on life insurance. If, if I told Dom to, I'm $2,100 in just in case something happens. You know how Dom to would look at me? like I look at her. But the number one reason people say they can't be involved in missions as American Christians is I don't have any money. If you get time, go to this website. What this website does is it, if, when you type it in, It'll say, do you want euros, pounds, or dollars? Put in dollars, and then you type in how much you and your spouse make a year. Type in you and your spouse how much your salary is a year. Then it takes the 7.1 billion people on the planet and tells you the exact number, the exact number, the wealthiest person in the world you are. I did it. I'm doing awesome. It's like me, Brad Pitt. I mean, we are right there. It gives you an exact number. And then... 
to fully convict you if you're not convicted more of how wealthy you really are in light of the planet, type in that you make $600 a year and watch the number that pops up. You are still in the top 50% of all people in the world for you are number. Type in $300 a year. You are still in the top 30% of the richest people in the world. You are the exact number We need to be people who give sacrificially. And then finally, the mobilizer. The mobilizer. The best definition of a mobilizer that I could think of is someone who has a passion for the world and a passion to pass it on. Everybody mobilizes to, some, to something, right? Right now, if you go to Columbus, Ohio, there's a whole group. I know you probably don't know this, but Urban Meyer's kind of dealing with stuff. There's a whole group, their whole passion is mobilizing to let Urban Meyer keep his job. That's all they're doing. Okay? Everybody mobilizes to something. But as a Christ follower, you need to mobilize people to the unreached. You need to raise up people to be goers, pray your sinners, welcomers. You need to be a mobilizer in helping your peers, your friends, your Christ followers who are looking for a passion and a purpose connect it to the nations. So a mobilizer is someone who has a passion for the world and a passion to pass it on. I would love for you over the next six months to say, Lord, make me a master mission mobilizer. Give me the resources. Give me the, 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 the people in my life that I can connect with. Give me a mentor. Give me someone. And I'm not talking about just going overseas, right? I'm talking about just raising up global Christians. I'm not saying, oh, get me a passport to go. I'm saying, man, give me someone that I can help encourage, equip, See, we all have one thing in common, don't we? Everyone in this room has Christian friends back home who don't care. And a mobilizer says, man, how can I go lovingly, slowly, humbly, and move them from apathetic to involved? Habakkuk 2 says, the Lord, says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a vision, but this vision isn't for you. This vision is for someone else. I'm going to give you the vision so that you would encourage others. He says, record the vision and make it plain on tablets that the one who reads it may run. He says, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a vision so that you can pass it on so that they would respond. Man, we've had incredible sessions this week. God has moved. What if you said, man, I'm going to take what I learned this week and I'm going to write down some of the key things. I'm going to make it plain and I'm going to take my friend to coffee and say, man, look at what I learned last week. Can we walk through this? Hey, these are the five Great Commission texts. Can I just walk you through them? Just, I'm going to pr practice on you, so be, be patient. What if you just said, man, Lord, give me a few people that I can go to to mobilize? You need to see yourself as a mobilizer. Think about it. Behind every missionary is a mobilizer. Behind every missionary is a mobilizer. And maybe you're between that age gap of 26 and 54 and you're like, God, I'm not going to see the mission field nor am I. I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. <laughs> but guess what? You can mobilize people to it. You can mobilize people to reach out, the, reach out to the immigrants, the internationals, the, the refugees. 
Should every Christian be a cross-cultural missionary? No. But every Christian should be a global Christian. And because at your church you have new believers coming in, every global Christian should be a mobilizer. Every global Christian should be a mobilizer. World evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. World evangelization requires the whole church. We're all involved. We all play a part. And so I just pray as we conclude tonight that you would leave here going, Lord, give me eyes to see the nations around me back home. Give me the ability even though I'm reluctant to pray for my kids to be in your will and not mine. Remind me of the nations in my prayer closet. And Lord, give me a few names of people who I can meet with and share some of this information with. Let me just pray and then we're going to see some talent. Father, thank you for this ministry, Gold Lake, that has profoundly impacted my life, my kids' lives, that will continue to impact them. I I just pray that you would just continue to use this ministry to raise up global Christians. Lord, I just pray for the staff as they're trying to challenge these university students who are serving us at every meal who are literally some of the most mobilizable people on the planet Lord that the, even the staff as we're around them Lord that they would be encouraged and Lord we just pray for us just we no idea what we're going to get this week Lord but I just pray that we would leave here people who are global Christians that you would just calm our fears and our doubts and just bring to light application, even on the drive back. We ask this in your name. Amen.